0: Welcome to the Shaping Champions podcast, a platform for discussion and exploration into what it takes to be a champion in life. We speak to athletes, entertainers, business people, and everyone in between about their journey and experiences, discovering the key ingredients needed to become successful at whatever it is you do. Please do subscribe to us at wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Shaping Champions Podcast. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Shaping Champions podcast, hosted by myself, Jimmy Davis, where we talk to a variety of professionals across the worlds of sport, business, and entertainment and discuss just what it takes to shape present and future champions. My guest on today's episode is a professional tennis player and someone who has most certainly experienced the highs and lows of professional sport and everything in between. I'm very, very excited to welcome to the podcast, Marcus Willis. How are you doing, sir? Hi, uh, uh, thanks for having me. I'm doing not too bad. I'm not too bad, thank you. Nice one. And you look like you're you're joining us from somewhere um, other than the UK, so give us a little flavour of where you're at at the moment. Yeah, I'm in.
1: Uh, I'm in Italy, just on the coast in Italy at San Benedito del Tronto. It's called. Um, yeah, playing a tournament. I start tomorrow. Uh, it's hot here. It's like thirty-five degrees today. I was hitting at one o'clock. It's. Uh, it, it took me back.
0: <laughs> Crikey! Yeah, so uh, you're up against it tomorrow then, not just in the form of the the opponent, but also the weather. So. Marcus, I'd be really interested to, to hear from you. What does it mean to you to be a champion?
1: To be a champion? Um, I mean, to be a champion is to be the best. Is is to Yeah, it's to be the best. If you asked me when I was a kid, I would have said to win everything. Um, but now I think if you're doing, if you're being the best you can be, if you're maximising your potential, then then, in my eyes, you're a champion as well. So it's not necessarily winning everything all the time. Um, that,
0: that's how I see it now. Yeah, that that word potential. I think that's the key, the key one in, in what you just said. Um, so take us right back to, to the beginning of your journey in tennis then, Marcus. And now, let's talk about your potential. How did you get into tennis? How did it all start? Well, uh, my mum played badminton um just at the local
1: club. I mean she was very good, um, and I started playing as well, having badminton lessons. um and then my badminton coach started running mini tennis lessons on a Thursday, and I started playing, and I picked up really well. I didn't I didn't start playing tennis till I was eight, which is actually quite late for a professional. but um yeah, I started playing tennis, uh, mini tennis, on a Thursday, and I just absolutely loved it. And I'd, I'd get home from school and play against the wall for like three hours. Mama, mama, to call me in for dinner most nights. Um, so I just, I guess, had an obsession with it, for whatever reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I absolutely loved it. And then my parents, every year from from then, they'd take me to Queens on a Thursday, on the Thursday of the tournament. I would take a packed lunch and go and watch all the players. Um, and I'd you know, go and try and get an autograph off Goran and people like that and watch Sam Preston, Hemman, all those guys. Um, and I just... I mean, looking back, you d- you don't know what it takes at the time, but I just knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play the big tournaments. I wanted to play at Queen's. I wanted to play at Wimbledon. And then, and then from there, I guess... I guess I played a lot more. I got quite good. I was, you know, one of the top players in the county by the time I was under 12. And then by the time I was 16, I was selected to play for Great Britain and the top three players there. And then by the time I was 18, I was number one in the country and number 14 in the world as a junior. So I think, I mean, it's a bit vague, but I, I just, as I said, I was obsessed and I practiced and you know, a, a good coach saw me at a local tournament and said to my parents, you know, this kid's got something I'd like to coach him. And he was sort of the best coach in, uh, well, best coach I, I knew. Um, and I worked with him between the ages of of 11 and 18. Um, and by the time I was 14, I was training 25 hours a week and, you know, missing quite a bit of school and trying to catch up work and, you know, um, getting changed in the car on the, on the way to school after training. And it was just, yeah, I don't know how I did. It, actually, it was pretty full on. But it, it went from you know enjoying it as a as an eight year old to what well, you know waking up at before
0: six to eat breakfast to to go to training mm-hmm. every every day, bar Saturday. So so that obsession that you mentioned, where did that stem from? Was that just a real love for the game for the sport, or did you was there like a desire to compete, a hunger to win?
1: Hmm. I've, I've always been extremely competitive in, in you know whatever I've done but I don't like losing anything whether it's a game of Scrabble or Monopoly or I love playing my football FIFA I've broken a couple of controllers over the years um, playing that um, so <laughs> you know I love competing whatever it is even if I'm rubbish I'll compete at something um, I don't know yeah that, that's that's who I am um, and I need to learn, know when to sort of rein that in sometimes but uh but no, I just had this. I don't know. I, I I got home from school and I'd be playing against the wall, pretending I'm playing against Pete Sampras in the final Wimbledon stuff like that. And I'll just go for hours. Um, yeah, the amount of balls I hit against uh, the side of my house must have done my parents insane. But I just I just absolutely loved it and, and loved <clears throat> what is it about tennis? The fact you're by yourself and there's so many different ways you can play. Um, you don't if you watch Wimbledon now, everyone's quite playing a very similar way. But like back back when it was a sort of a serve volley sport, there were people lobbing, you could volley, you could forehand, backhand. I just found it I could express myself. Um, and you know, I played a bit of football when I was younger and it was great. I love it, I still like playing now. But um, you know, you're out there by yourself in tennis. You've got a problem solve. Whereas I find in football you can have a, a, a good game and lose, and you can have a bad game and you can win as a team. So I, I don't. When in tennis, it's it's not so much like that. You know, everything's on, on you and, and trying to break your opponent down. So I just yeah, any individual sport, I sort of prefer prefer the team sports for for whatever reason.
0: Can it can it be quite lonely? You know, you mentioned it being an individual sport. There are there, are there times where you do feel sort of um, distant and. Perhaps a bit yeah. below the edge.
1: It's not so, yeah. When I'm playing and practising, it's great. It's it's The travel days are, are quite long. Like, I'm by myself a lot. Uh, obviously, I, I play doubles now, so I've always got a partner with me. Um, at, you know, at the tournament, we don't always travel together and I play with different people. But, no, yeah, it does get lonely. Um, and it's something I didn't manage very well in my 20s. In my early 20s, I uh, I hated being bored. Um. And I found myself in, you know, in, in too many student nights and um, stuff like that between matches. And I just, I didn't really know what to do with myself. Like the thought of going into a hotel room and, and sitting there for three hours. Just, just, I couldn't do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas now I've got, you know, a family, a, a young family and, and whenever I can sleep, I do it. It's very different. But, but in my 20s, I was like, you know, I, if I'm not going out, I'm going to the cinema or I'm going to dinner. I'm always looking to have banter with someone or you know i couldn't really keep still and i sort of struggled with that over the years always got myself in a little little bit of trouble i suppose and you know and that stemmed from sort of 16 years old um up until about you know 22 23
0: ultimately And, and understandable you know because when you're at that age you you have those things, those temptations, and everyone else is out doing it as well, alongside the things that you've mentioned, the, the kind of, um, you know, struggling to be on your own and be in your own company. So in that sense, does that mean that there's a level of mental resilience needed, not just on the court, but off the court as well?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, obviously, I can put it down to me as well, my personality, whatever, but the players that did their best had a team around them and you'll see the top pros now who are playing at Wimbledon, they've got, you know, a team around them still. So I think the importance of that is very underrated. And I, from the age of 16, you know, I had coaches, but I didn't have people around me. I didn't have a a support network. And I think that's where a lot of players, certainly in Britain, they, I see guys now traveling to tournaments by themselves, because there's no other way, you know, you can't afford a coach, but I mean, no, no players doing it by themselves like I can't think I can think of probably five guys off the top of my head that have gone around playing tournaments or in the top 100 in the world by themselves it just does, it just it just doesn't happen so you know I travel with 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 my dad up until the age of you know 16 17 and you know he, he was quite strict but it actually it kept me on the straight and narrow and all all I was doing was focusing on tennis and stuff like that and then you know, when I could be by myself, I sort of thought, oh, I can do what I want now. You know, no one's telling me what to do. But actually, like, you see Rublev, Djokovic, Murray, you see you see their family are in the box still with them now.
0: Mm.
1: But they're, they're not by themselves. Um, and I think I underestimated the importance of the off-court stuff. Mm. I thought, like, I always trained super hard. I was always one of the fittest in the the squad if you know I had the best set of lungs I could run all day you know I was quick at at 17 18 my fitness was great I was a bit out of shape but I didn't think it mattered um whereas now I think I've you know I'm taking these supplements every night I'm trying to look for that extra one percent that's gonna help me get better rather than see what I can get away with or you know think it's okay because you know I'll just win anyway um so I think it's learning, and and really, um, I certainly was a kid up until the age of twenty-two. Um, you're still you're so young that you haven't really experienced. You know, you're quite sheltered from the real world as a tennis player. So, you know, it's hotels, it's eating, it's it's training, and then you know, you, you know, and and then when when you're sort of twenty-one or so, and you're by yourself, you start you're looking around a bit, and and maybe wanting to fit in, or maybe wanting to let your hair down a bit, or, or whatever, I don't know what it is, um, but, the, you know, that's sort of the route I took, it wasn't like I was on three-day benders all the time, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I wasn't getting, enough. you know, the right sleep, I wasn't eating the right way, uh, you know, obviously I went on a few nights out, uh, sometimes even before matches, like, and I'd, I'd turn up and, and win a lot of the time, but that's not the point. I was kind of thinking about just winning that match rather than the long-term process of being, you know, a champion or the best you can be. Mm-hmm. I was just focusing on winning, and I knew I kind of could at, at that level I was playing at. So, you know, I've learned a lot over the years. <laughs> I've had a lot of time to think about how to get better, but ultimately it's, it's me by myself.
0: Yeah. See, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you reached the top 20 in the junior rankings, um, clearly you had an incredible amount of talent. Do, do you think think that you reached a point then where you felt like your talent would just carry you through?
1: Certainly a little bit because, you know, I went to the Federation when I was 17, 18 and, and some people around you just tell you you're better than you are. Um, mm. There's a lot of rave. I, I think in the UK it's not just tennis, like football as well. You, you told you are brilliant when you're not yet. Whereas you go out to Spain, Argentina, and Italy, it's, yeah, you've got got potential, you've got talent, but there's a long way to go. I kind of thought my first year juniors, I'll be top 200 in the world straight away. That was my my thought. Um, And obviously I wasn't. (coughs) But yeah, I I think I have one really good coach who kept me really grounded, whether I won or lost. Um, But I don't think there's enough of that. There's so much focus on... You know, if you win this futures, you'll go to this ranking. And, you know, you're number 14, the World Juniors. Also, the Junior Tour, like you're playing all the Grand Slams. You're being put in a five-star hotel on Fifth Avenue at hmm. the US Open. You're kind of being treated like someone who's at the US Open for good.
0: Hmm.
1: Whereas, you know, a year later, I'm I'm on the wrong train in Romania by myself. And I think you're just maybe given too much. Like these contracts, I have an agent... Um, I had like retainers on my rackets I was was getting things that a lot of guys 200 in the world weren't getting and I wasn't as good as them Hmm. so I think Hmm. it it can be dangerous being a good junior because you think oh this is what my life's going to be like now
0: yeah the sort of the the too much too soon kind of approach perhaps Um, and yeah I think you know you're absolutely right like young Young sporting prodigies, um, perhaps their their maybe their egos are overinflated. People giving them that message, you know, a bit too early or whatever. Um, but at that point, there were sort of question marks were, were had arisen, hadn't they, about your kind of attitude, or at least this is what I've you know I've read and
1: um, yeah, it's,
0: it's tough to, with.
1: with it's tough with media and stuff and you know you don't always get the the full side of the story um you know if you look online it's made out like I I rocked up to a practice court a session without my rackets, like I just forgot on my room um that's how it sort of was spun and that wasn't the the, Mm. (laughs) it wasn't the truth like I missed I missed a bus to go and get my accreditation I was late for that I was faffing about in my room but you know it was a bus to go and get our path for the week and practice was meant to be next to the hotel so as i was on the way on, on the late bus because we had a couple of hours buffer as i was on the late bus to um to get my accreditation i was obviously bollock for being late on the phone um i then we were originally told to leave our rackets at the hotel because we were practicing there so i, I left my rackets, um got to the center got my accreditation and as i was um going back to the hotel the coach rang me and said let just meet tell tell the driver to drop you at the practice court and I said oh okay then because I thought maybe they wanted to talk to me or something because I mean it's it's 400 meters away from the um from the hotel and and as I walked on the court all the boys are hitting and they're hitting an hour and a half earlier than we were meant to be hitting um and they kind of said like where's your rackets and I said look oh, like what's happened to the practice session like have you moved it forward and they were like yeah well, why didn't why did you miss the bus and there was a sort of a bit of an argument about it obviously I shouldn't have been late um and that was the last for all the trip I was just messing around like nothing I did was you know illegal or anything ridiculous but I was just being a bit of an immature lad you know like praying prank pranks on people knocking on people's doors and running away and it wasn't just me by myself as well there was always different people there but it was always me being there. So, you know, that was kind of the last straw for them. And I was, I was really surprised when they told me they're sending me home from a grand slam. <laughs> Considering I'd, I'd worked my nuts off to get seeded. Um, my dad rang the LTA and said, look, I'll pay for the whole price of the trip and he, he'll stay with friends. He won't be a bother to you. Just let him play. But because it was a, a you know, a trip run by the Federation, they had the authority to pull me out. So, so they pulled me out, you know, even my dad pleaded, said, look, yeah, sorry, he's not been easy, but we'll pay for whatever you paid so far and he'll stay with friends, just let him play. And they said no. And then, you know, two weeks later, I've got the presser ringing me up and knocking on my door. And it's like, it's all a bit confusing because, yeah, I was immature. Yeah, I was a bit of a pain, but I didn't feel like I did anything to deserve being sent home and not playing a, a Grand Slam. Um mm-hmm. And, yeah, you say, did I learn from that uh, or did I learn from it? I stopped trusting people. I stopped trusting people. Mm. I, stopped trusting people. Um, I realized, you know, people, the Federation didn't have my back so much. Um, certain individuals who, you know, act like your best mate. But this is life. This is this is what happens, not just in tennis. You think you see people who act nice to you and not nice behind your back. And that was a tough, tough lesson for a 17-year-old lap um so yeah it it was it was heartbreaking at the time don't get me wrong I was I worked really hard to get you know top 15 in the world I was seeded I was about to play you know the next day and they pulled me out the day before so um so yeah I think that 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 knocked me a little bit that knocked me yeah certainly a little bit
0: um but yeah learn a valuable lesson I suppose I mean, it does seem really harsh. What strikes me about the story is the, the, perhaps the difference in cultures between sports. So if I think about, you know, you're a football fan, Marcus. If I think about someone yeah. like Paul, Paul Gascoigne in the world of football was constantly playing pranks on everybody at every yeah. training camp, every major competition, any chance he yeah. got, And, like, it was embraced. It was, you know, it, it was encouraged to a degree, you know what I mean? So I think, yeah, that that just really hits home, the sort of, perhaps how strict the the tennis officials are maybe or the
1: funny yeah the funny thing the funny thing about it was is that there, you know there were coaches there that had been around in the UK one actually was at our academy and it wasn't like I never did this kind of stuff before or you know we didn't muck around and it, it seemed fine there but as soon as we were at the Aussie open or an official trip it was just like no you can't do that no you can't do that and look I mean I was I'm not saying I was perfect I must have been like yeah, I was. I must have been tough to, to look after. But I wasn't going out drinking. I wasn't going missing. Um, I trained hard on court. I, you know, the results were good. I like. I wanted to be there. It wasn't like, you know, I was lax or, you know, I wasn't off smoking around the corner or anything like that. I was just being a bit of a dick. Yeah. And and, and probably, yeah, It's pro- it was probably a bit relentless. But as I said, we're 17-year-old lads and I was probably, I was I was excited to be in Australia as well. So <laughs> a lot of it's a lot of emotions going on. Um, but yeah, I I'd, I'd like to say I matured straight away but I didn't. I still I still like a joke around now every now and again but it's just it's just very different. It's just I don't I don't know. I think you put a group of lads together 17-year-old lads together and there's going to be a couple that are louder or more annoying than the other ones I suppose. Mm. And that was me. <laughs> No, it was me. I wasn't very good at, at not getting caught as well. Like there there's some lads on that trip who are doing exactly the same as me who didn't get tied off once. Mm. Um so yeah.
0: So, I, wasn't so
1: very, was I wasn't very subtle with it, let's put it that way. <laughs>
0: yeah. What was that feeling like on the plane on the way back home? How did you feel?
1: It was uh, it was so surreal. Like I,
0: I don't know if I was trying to blot it out of my mind
1: or not accept it, but um, I remember, I, yeah, I flew by myself as well. As, a, as I was 17, and I, yeah, flew home by myself um, via Hong Kong. And I remember my girlfriend at the time said, uh, like, whatever you do, don't look online. And <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> so obviously the first thing I do is go and look online. It's all over the press already, like 12 hours after me leaving. Um <clears throat> saying I, I forgot my rackets, I walked onto court about my rackets, and I was like, okay. <laughs> um, it was all a bit surreal. Like even when I talk about it now, I can't. Yeah, it's one of those things. Um, but no, I, I didn't really. It didn't really hit home until I sort of landed and saw the carnage it was with. Sort of the media kind of harassing my family and myself with phone calls and knocks on the door. It was pretty brutal um,
0: over over forgetting a tennis bag supposedly and so and so what happens next you know did your relationship with the LTA deteriorate and and what was the sort of what were the preceding years like well no I mean they kind of had a word with
1: me about my conduct and I kind of accepted it I, I kind of wish I didn't accept it Um but I was, you know, funded at the time, hence why they could pull me out. Um, and, you know, I, I had meetings and stuff. And, and I remember when I got back, my local academy said, look, you can't come here and train for two weeks because we need to be seen doing the same thing that the LTA have done. I was thinking, like, like what is this? So I went and trained um, John Morris, who is an agent now, but he was a coach at the time. He said, you can come and train with me in, in Essex. So I went off to Essex for two weeks and trained. Um, but yeah, it was a really tricky time and I sort of met with the LTA and sort of said, you know, wrote down a few things that I'd, you know, abide by attitude wise. Um, and, uh, and it was fine. It was fine. I then went and won the Canadian Open that summer, but I mean, after my dad then started traveling with me again by myself, I missed the South America tour with the LTA as well. I wasn't allowed to go on that. So I went to, you know, Luxembourg around Europe with my dad who was, you know, understandably quite annoyed. I don't know if he was, you know, he said he was annoyed at me, but I'm sure he was frustrated at them as well. But he wouldn't tell me that. Um, and I did I did really well. I mean, I felt under a lot of pressure. Um, but, yeah, I, I played really well, won, won the Canadian Open, and as a result of that, got invited on the Davis Cup squad. Um, and, you know, that September, I was training with Andy Murray and, and had a GB tracksuit on. Um, it wasn't until, you know, that January where, where the LTA sort of called me to one side and said, look, we're not renewing your contract. We don't think you're serious enough. You know, even though you're the second highest ranked out of eight players and your fitness test is, is the second highest out of eight players, we just don't think you're that serious about the sport. And, uh, you're still, you know, 18% body fat and we want you to be lower than that. Um, but at that point, I wanted to leave because I kind of knew it was coming and I knew they didn't have my back and you know I thought oh I'll go and train at Sutton Jeremy Bates wonderful coach I'll go train with him there and he, and he was a wonderful coach and I played well for a bit but then that's where I started going out a little bit you know during the week there was a night bus outside our house that so went straight to Oceania Kingston um, and so you know we'd go out and we'd turn up on court sometimes hungover and we'd train but it, it wasn't ideal <laughs> and then of course I ran out of you know, I ran out of funding after that. So I'm then playing, you know, I'm 500 in the world first year at juniors, which isn't a disgrace at all. Um, I'm then sort of, you know, four, 400. I got to tops of 3, 400 and then plateaued a little bit. And then I could only afford to really play 12 tournaments a year. And you need to play 25. Like most, most players play 25, between 25 and 30. So I was floating along you know playing all right still but i didn't really improve and then you know i had to stop and do a bit of coaching when i was uh 22 i then got really out of shape um found myself a sponsor very kindly put money up and i got my ranking from i think 1200 to 350 in one year um and then you know i played wimbledon qualifying lost first round I didn't have a good match but I was you know playing challenges and stuff like that um but yeah I got to got to 320 in the world singles the doubles was good i was I was top 250 um you know I could play nearly a full calendar so I was kind of I was kind of nearly there but it was frustrating I mean yeah had I had an unlimited amount of money or funding you know if 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 um I feel I would have done you know, significantly better, but that's my journey. And then obviously, uh, obviously I was about to stop. I got injured in the January and then 2016 happened. So
0: <coughs> that was quite nice. Yeah, we'll definitely come to that in a second for sure. Um, so I'm interested, do you, do you sort of, is there a bit of resentment there towards the LTA, uh, Marcus? Do you feel that if, if, if there had been a support system in place, And if you'd have been helped through that period, that actually, you know, you could have gone on to great things.
1: It's it's very easy to criticise the LTA. Um, (coughs) Especially from my point of view, I didn't have a positive experience. Um, Mm. Like you, the training was really good. The coaching was really good. um, But there were four players to a coach and the coach I did really well with, they wouldn't let me have him full time because he coached another group of players. And, The coach we were given wanted me to play a style that didn't really work. He was a very good coach, but just not for me. And when I sort of highlighted this after a few weeks, it, it, you know, um, they kind of told the coach I didn't want to work with him. But then, you know, made me still work with him. So the relationship wasn't good. Um, And yeah, as I said, you you leave training on a Friday and they're like, "Yeah, see you Monday." There's no sort of human connection. it's all very much. We're paid this much money a year to coach you between Monday and Friday, and then see you later. Um, I've got to take, you know, responsibility myself as well. But I, I felt, I felt, you know, very alone. I didn't have a whole lot of direction. Um, I was a little bit lost. But you know, this 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 isn't just me. This happens to loads of promising players. They just sort of get flattered. You're kind of given everything, and then you're given nothing the next year. And they can kind of control what they want to control. Like, we're giving you 80 grand's worth of funding one year because you've got a coach travelling with you. And then the next year, oh sorry, you're not serious enough. Good luck. Um, so I, I feel <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I, I don't. For, from what financially what the LTA have to how many players they've actually produced themselves, I, I don't think it's very good, no but they don't seem to, they don't seem to look at the countries that are doing well and kind of copy them. Like I'm in Italy now and there's a, there's a challenger tournament on, there's also a futures on, they, they've they got tons and tons of tournaments every week. And the UK there's maybe 10 a year and we live on an Island. So unless you've got money to travel, you can't play tennis. Hmm. Um, and there, there was a stage where it was really good. So they had this bonus system, which meant anyone could get it any age. Um, whatever round you reached in a tournament, the LTA would match financially. And there were 20-odd tournaments in the UK a year. So, yeah, you you could find family somewhere or you could stay cheap somewhere, play a lot of tournaments. If you did well, the LTA matched your prize money. You could actually start being able to travel a little bit as well. Mm. Um, And then that got completely scrapped the next year. So it's it's frustrating as a player. Um, No, I don't have all the answers of how to you know, generate loads of world class players, but I feel like they support too few players at too much of a too much of a cost. And I think it whacks pressure on people too young by telling them they're brilliant by giving them so much. I don't think it helps. Rather than if you actually fund fifty players with ten grand rather than ten players with fifty grand, I think you'll create a lot more good players in the future maybe not Andy Murray's but I don't think there's a recipe for that Mm -hmm. you know Murray's not LTA he went to Spain when he was 14 James Ward went to Spain when he was 14 Cam Norrie was about to quit went to American College Dan Evans is an anomaly um do you look at most of the good players have either done it from abroad or done it themselves Mm -hmm. um certainly certainly on the men's side
0: I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Shaping Champions podcast. Thank you again for listening. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Shaping Champions podcast. Please do subscribe to us at wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to discuss anything with us, make any suggestions or offer up any guests that you'd like us to interview, please do contact us on any of our social channels or email us on shapingchampions@outlook.com. Enjoy the rest of the show. I'm not sure what it's like now, Marcus, but was there any focus on the psychological side of things when you were coming through the system, or was it all technical?
1: Oh, there's so much technical stuff. Like, and that's another thing I find frustrating about tennis in Britain is that they're so obsessed with how it looks rather than how effective it is. And, like, mm. you look at all the French tennis players, there's so much different style going on. They're so fascinating to watch, but, you know, most of the co- coaching in the UK is about, it, you know, looking good preparation. Doesn't matter if you hit it in the back fence, but as long as it looks good, it's fine. That's kind of what it feels like sometimes. And I was, I'm not very good technically. I'm, you won't see me in any textbooks for any of my strokes, bar maybe my serve. I played badminton. I'm very risky, but, you know, I, I had a really good serve and a really good back end as a junior. And the federation, the first thing they do is, right, let's, um, let's just get your good. And so I became, I went through weeks, I went through uh, training weeks with, you know, hitting one basket to serve sometimes. They focus on the weakness too much or how it looks, I found. I got really fit though. I was in the shape of my life. I just didn't really improve that much over that year. Um, whereas hmm. in France, they would say, let's make your serve and your backhand even bigger and let's get your forehand working so you don't have to hit that many of them. So put it in awkward position so they have to hit to your backhand next. It's all so it, it's
0: yeah, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. All right, well let's let let's move the conversation along. Let's not dwell on the frustration too much. But um before before we get to, you know, the, the incredible events of twenty sixteen, am I right in thinking that just before that time you were sort of considering quitting? the sport before yeah you... I, I um i found a job with it with a
1: player where I'd, I'd coach them and and i'd play the the tournament as well and that was sort of a plan and then in january i, I twisted my knee playing doubles um so I, had to, I was in the quarterfinals of singles and i had to pull out and then my knee didn't really recover until april and then i was sort of playing french league matches um and in that time when I was injured, I went to Philadelphia where the player was from and um, started doing a bit of work, so sort of coaching, hitting, earning pretty good money. <laughs> um, and I had quite a few different job offers from places like, you know, around Philadelphia and obviously with the coach I was working with as well. And it was just something I was considering um, because, yeah, financially it's great. You know, I love Philadelphia, great city. Um, and I was just... Fed up with kind of being by myself trying to find a way. Um, so yeah, I was considering moving to America. Is <laughs> the
0: is the short answer? And what what changed? What happened?
1: I mean when wouldn't happened. I think again the media said, look, like my now wife convinced me to sign in over the phone. Now look, I met my wife in in the March. Um, I then went to Warwick and got like a job at the boat club with Gavin Henderson. So I was doing a bit of coaching there. Um, And my plan was always to sign in for pre-Qualies because my ranking, I still had a a half decent ranking from, you know, the January and the year before. Um, And obviously I signed in over the phone, got into pre-Qualies and, and, you know, went on my run. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I can still play. Um, Maybe, you know, I've, Got a girlfriend now, you know, things escalated there. You know, um, we got married in November. We got two kids together now. Um, things escalated. And then, you know, America was, you know, it's, the options is not there now. <laughs> you know, I live in Warwick. My kids go to school there. Um, you know, I'm traveling the world playing doubles. But yeah, that, that's that's why I didn't go to America. <laughs> because my life completely changed sort of over two weeks. Yeah. good
0: let's, let, let, let's get into that right now, man, because, you know, we are definitely talking about like one of the, re- the most remarkable kind of runs in tennis history, definitely in Wimbledon history. Um, and let's start with the whole kind of David Rice dropping out and not allowing you the opportunity. I mean, how do you, like when you reflect on that now, what do you see that as like luck, fate, destiny?
1: It sounds cheesy, but I, I just the stars aligned for me. Really, like everything that happened over those two weeks was mental. So Scott Clayton missed his flight; his flight got cancelled from Istanbul to London, which you know it's quite a you know frequent route, so he couldn't make sign-in on time. I Just David Rice had just dry, his ranking had dropped the week before, so I overtook him in the rankings, and I got last in. I got last in to pre qualify. I was actually wasn't I was quite surprised to hear I was last in because the previous years if you're sort of a thousand in the world you got in and I was 770 so I, I was like oh I nearly didn't get in and then I was told you know, Scott Clayton would have bumped you out had he made it back so wow. I mean that really that really could have been it for me because it had I not got in pre-college you know I wasn't going on a tour I just had a job at the boat club I was quite happy earning money and with my new girlfriend <laughs> so life was great Um but as I said, yeah, I got in. I hadn't hit a ball on grass. So we rocked up the night before. Um, you know, it was raining, so I, I didn't get to practice on the grass. So I, first time I hit on grass was for my match. You know, I won six and six, and I, I won the other two matches in straight sets. And I think when I pre-qualified, I was like, oh, my goodness. Just made five grand there. Like that's amazing, and my my and Jenny was with me at the time, and we were just both like over the moon. We went into London to Nike Town and bought myself a new a white Nike top and a pair of shorts because I had to play qualifying. <laughs> um, just happy as Larry, I like. I, I didn't expect. I knew I was playing okay, but to, you know to come through three tough matches there and pre qualifying. Um, yeah, I wasn't expecting it, and then yeah, obviously I went went to a Coldplay concert at Wembley. On the Sunday night before the Monday quali, <laughs> I was there, uh, you know, enjoying the music and, and the draw came out. And, you know, I said to my dad, that's not that's not ideal. I'm playing a guy who's qualified the last three years. Jap- Japanese guy who's, he's pretty good. And, and my dad just kind of went, oh, well, well, just go and enjoy yourself. It doesn't matter. Just enjoy Coldplay now. <coughs> and, uh, and, yeah, I went 6-1 down in 17 minutes in that match wow (laughs) I went 6-1 down in 17 minutes but I was actually playing okay I was just missing missing the lines by an inch or so Um, and I actually I didn't change anything I kept going for it I was like well if I'm going to go out I'm going to go out the way I want to play and and, you know I turned it around and won 7-5-6-1 and then I've got 8 grand I've got 8 grand and I've just beaten a guy 99 in the world you know a week a week before I was coaching mini reds at Boat Club
0: incredible so what at that point when you were a uh, uh, set down yeah what changed in the game did was it your intensity was it your accuracy what you know did did he drop a little bit like what no I mean I, I was I remember I remember he had a
1: break point to go break up in the second and he missed a he missed a passing shot hit the top of the net and went wide um I just started making, I was hitting the ball pretty big. I was trying to play aggressive because he's super quick and he's super consistent. Um, I just started, you know, being a little more accurate, being a little more accurate, um, being a bit calmer. And then as I said, I got the break at 6-5 in the second and, and then I won 6-1 in the third and didn't miss a ball and was, you know, hitting the ball very hard. <laughs> so I think I just, I just, Believe that I was playing the right way and, and kept going and stay calm. Rather than the easy thing to do, there is panic and, and try too much. Mm. I sort of just hung in there, as, and you can feel sometimes when your when your game's coming. Like sometimes you, you miss a ball, but it feels good. Like you have a good connection with it, and I, I felt it was coming,
0: and it did. <laughs> so, luckily, so anyone... luckily, just in time. Yeah, absolutely. So, so for anyone listening to this or watching this. What what advice could you give them for staying calm in a moment like that, you know, in a high-pressure situation? How do you approach it?
1: I uh, I mean, those two weeks I was doing it really well. I just managed to stay very, very present in, in that and focus on just the next point. All the time, it was just about the next shot or the next point. Um, and, and I'm glad I have my head screwed on for those few weeks because, you know, there's been times in my career where, you know, like everyone, you've folded sometimes or you've just completely lost it. Um, but there it was, you know, I played fantastically well. I just very much, as I said, stayed in the present, believed in myself, and I, was, I'd, I had little expectation, but I didn't want to be humiliated as well. So every match I was going in, and all I was thinking about was staying with them and, and trying to play my best tennis. Rather than, oh, my goodness, I hope I, don't, you know, I hope I don't lose. I need to hit my volleys here. It was just very much like, if I serve well, if I do what I do well, I've got a chance. And that chance is,
0: is enough sometimes. So in the next game, you're up against Andre Rublev. For anyone who doesn't know, he's currently world number seven. Um was playing Djokovic today, actually. We're recording this during Wimbledon this year. Um, and so... You know, that is, am I right in thinking you won that game straight sets? Yeah, uh, five and seven, five, six, four. Yeah. And yeah, and he was, what was
1: he was, he was good. Like I'd seen him on TV. He did well in an ACP that year. Um, I knew he was young. He must have been 19 at the time, 18, 19. Um, he, he hit the ball incredibly hard, but you know, he stood very far back to return. And for a serve volley, that's great. And he, you know, he, he was very one-dimensional at that time. So once I actually got used to the pace of his ball, you know, I won five and four, but I had quite a few other break points in, in the match where where I thought I could have won easier. He was getting, getting more and more wound up because I didn't want to trade with him. I was using Slice a lot, bringing him to the net, you know, lobbing, playing quite crafty tennis. And obviously, he's young and not played many people like myself. So... You know, tactically, I played that much well, but it was quite comfortable, actually. Mm. But and yeah, he hit, the ball, he hit the ball hard. I remember saying to my friend after the first game, like, this is this is ridiculous. But you do, you do get used to it. You, you get used to it after a few games. I don't think I would now, though. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so is, is there a, a level of sort of, you know, adaptability that's needed as a tennis player? You really need to adapt to your opponent, the conditions, or the yeah, factors. Yeah,
1: and a lot of players don't. A lot of players don't have that. They just go and play their game and try and execute as well as they can. Um, I've I've always not played with a huge amount of... I've never really tried to whack anyone off the court. I always try and surf well and, you know, manoeuvre the ball around and, and make their life hell. Um, but yeah, if you you watch Djokovic, all the top players will find a way to win even if they're not playing well. And that that's something I've been quite good at over the years at my level is is remaining competitive mm. um but yeah yeah with Rublev I knew very quickly I'm not gonna try and trade blow for blow here <laughs> I, I won't be on there very long if I try and do that so you know everything kind of kind of went well it was uh, as I said those three weeks kind of aligned and and you know it was a good clean match um not too much drama and you know, there I was in the
0: last round qualifying with sixteen grand in my pocket. Yeah, it's uh it's getting better and better as you progress, isn't it? Absolutely. And you know, in, in more ways than one. And then so you're up against Medvedev, again, another, you know, world class player. I mean, he's 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 known for his sort of encore antics, isn't he? And being a little bit um, you know, the expletives come out and all that kind of behaviour. I mean, did you did you use that to your advantage? I mean, you lost a set in that match, didn't you, as well? And how did that sort of play out?
1: Yeah, I knew he'd. Uh, I knew he had a bit of a short temper because I'd, I'd you know, googled him a little bit and seen he got defaulted from a match in America and he loses his rag. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about him. He was only 220 in the world at the time, but he won his first two rounds six three six one and six one six two or something so i was like well he, he's obviously playing well and then yeah that that game i went five one down as well um got it back to five three had break points but kind of i felt like the better i played the better he played he, he's obviously very big quite long and you you feel like you've got the ball past him and then he comes out with these ridiculous angles uh, he had a, he had a missile of a serve and i just i remember being five one down thinking i, I don't know what I'm going to do to turn this around. He's playing unbelievable. Hmm. And then he just, he lowered his level a bit and I made a few more balls and, and, you know, won the second set seven, five. And then by then I felt like I was on top of him. Um, I stopped, you know, hitting the ball in corners and coming in so much. I I kept the ball down the middle because he liked, liked to target at the time. He liked you coming in and playing side to side. So I, I played up and back. I kept him short and pushed him deep, but kept it quite central. And I served it as body a lot, which I don't normally do because I like, you know, hitting ball towards target. So, again, I adapted the game and, and obviously he wasn't as effective. <coughs> but, I mean, I played I played very, very well. Played very, very good tennis. Um, and as I said, you know, I was 5-2 up serving for the fourth and um, serving for the match in the fourth set, 5-2, and I, I lost my serve to love. I got a little bit tight and then 5-4 I held to love. So yeah, it was it was weird. It didn't when I won I didn't really sink in. It didn't sink in for a while.
0: I mean, by uh, you know, at this point you, you were flying, weren't you? Just absolutely flying. And yeah, I mean I was gonna ask like, what what was going through you, your mind at, at that moment or you know in the I was just sort I was of, over you know, the moon well.
1: because because like, one one thing I would have regretted if I retired because I never played men's Wimbledon I played juniors twice so you know I had a great junior career and I never played I played queens as an adult I never played men's Wimbledon singles doubles anything and I remember like thinking that's such a shame because I was good enough and so when I qualified I was like I'm you know I've got everything I want now everything I want from from the sport I couldn't I, but again it didn't really make sense as I said the, the Monday before I'm coaching mini reds so like I made second round qualifying at Wimbledon when I was 19. I was looking good then, like to really push on. Um, It it didn't quite happen for me. I wasn't the most lucky as well. Um, And as I said, you know, I worked very, very hard. Those three years, I got my weight right down. Um, I was in good shape, but I was lucky as well. You know, I was lucky to get in pre-qualifying. I was lucky I played my best tennis at Wimbledon. Um, And I absolutely loved it. It was just those few weeks were fantastic. I ended up playing Federer like, in the second round. I mean, the odds of that as well, the odds of winning your first round and playing him on centre on top of this story of qualifying, it's just, you know, it, it was crazy.
0: Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Cra- crazy is an understatement. It, you know, phenomenal, really. But what it makes me think is that perhaps you know, some people would say that there's no such thing as luck. It's when preparation meets opportunity. It's a famous old saying, but it also just makes me feel like maybe you were playing with nothing to lose, like playing with a freedom. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm in this, there's no pressure on me. I can just do my thing. You know, like you talked about remaining calm in those sort of pressured situations. And, um, Anyone with any, any amount of scrutiny on them, perhaps, or expectation might have gotten tight in those moments and not, not have been able to pull through them. Um, it looked like you were thoroughly enjoying every minute oh, of it, you know, when I watched the
1: yeah. footage. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I felt very blessed to be there. I worked really, really hard, like really hard those three years previously. And, and then I got injured and I thought it wasn't going to happen. So like, I was there. I was had nothing to lose. I was playing Federer. Obviously, I wanted to win. I think I was more disappointed than I looked. Um, obviously, you always want to play better when if you lose. But um, yeah, I was I was happy to be there. And and you know, I gave him a half decent game in the end. Uh, and I was absolutely knackered. Like, absolutely knackered. It was my eighth match in
0: eleven days or something something like that. Yeah, exactly. And what that and that was his second. Yeah. Um... So, I mean, I mean, we've skipped over the, the first round match as well, Barankis. I mean, you were absolutely on yeah. fire in that game, weren't you? That was pe- uh, Some people refer to that as the game of your life, don't they? Um,
1: so, yeah, I mean...
0: How did you feel about it?
1: When I saw I got caught 17, because it was quite a big story when I qualified. It was The media quite enjoyed it, because they, they got hold of the fact that I was going to stop playing. And when I was on court 17, so on the Wimbledon program, it was number one match of the day to watch. And quite a lot of people were complaining that it was on 17, so there's only 300-odd seats. But I won my first ever match there as a junior on court 17, I remember thinking, this is lovely. Hmm. Little side court, not too much attention, I've won here before. Um, and yeah, I got out there in the first set and and the noise was ridiculous and uh, my opponent looked a bit shell-shocked. He came out uh, and my coach sort of said to him, uh, like he was at his side in the warm-up and he went like that to me. Like, he's nervous. He sort of said, like, go for it early because he's nervous. And I broke him first game. He hit like a double fault, like, probably like, you know, eight inches long. I remember thinking, all right then, game on. Um, and, and yeah, I mean... <coughs> I won in straight sets. There were some tricky moments in the match. I saved a load of break points. Um, my body started going in the third set. I remember I had an issue with with my stomach a bit, so I started slowing my serve down and putting more spin in it, which he didn't like. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, I, I played really well on the big points, just under pressure. But I remember, I remember going two sets to love up, and I remember saying to myself, like, you can't lose now. Hmm. You can't be that British guy who chokes from two sets up. You can't be another Brit who loses first round of Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got, I went to break up straight away and just held on. And I I played really good tennis. And and when he pushed me, I hit some really good shots at the end. But yeah, that was the best day of my my tennis life for sure. My Monday. Like the atmosphere, like all my family and friends were there in different areas of the courts. Um, It was loud. I played well. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. What a day. Monday the 27th of June that was, I think. Yeah, it was.
0: Fantastic, yes. man. Um, you know, even just sort of hearing you recall the moments makes the hair stand up, man. Yes. Um, no, it does. And so, I mean, we've got to sort of touch on walking out on centre court. I mean, it's just a dream, isn't it, man? You know, so many young tennis players just have that vision in their heads of even just, you know, gracing the, 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 the grass,
1: yeah. I mean, looking back, I'm more proud now than I was at the time. I just wanted to get onto the match and try and beat it. Mm. I knew it was a big deal because everyone was telling me it was a big deal. But it kind of all happened so quickly. I did appreciate it. I took it all in. But I was there to, to you know, not get thumped. And I was very, you know, after I lost the 1st set 6-6 love, I thought, right, okay. I wasn't playing that bad. I just didn't get over the line on the games. So I was thinking, right. I can't enjoy all this. I can't worry about all this. I've got to try and beat this guy, <laughs> and he's quite—he's quite hard to beat.
0: <laughs> yeah, just a bit. Um, and it, you know, but like you said, Marcus, you still—you played your part. You entertained the crowd. You, you played a shot that was voted shot of the tournament in that match. Hello. So, um, you know, so... uh? Did I lose you for a sec? Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, it's a bit crackly. I can hear you. Sorry about that. No, it's okay, mate. I can hear you. I'm not sure. um...
1: I think someone tried to call me. This is the only problem being on the phone.
0: Can you edit stuff on this out or not? Yeah, yeah, I can edit it out. It's no problem. Cool. It's so good we're not live. Um (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. Um,
1: don't worry. I've about got, I've got, a, I've got my my uh, my cousin's got Down syndrome, and she calls me sometimes, like just to speak to me over the phone. She's like twenty; she's super cute. But like, I get barrages of calls sometimes. So normally, oh. I mean, the last few days she's only called me once tonight, so it should be okay.
0: But yeah, oh, sorry about that. Say,
1: so, where were we? Should we start again from like a good cue?
0: Yeah, yeah. Don't apologise, mate. It's not a problem. Um, so yeah. You, you played your part in that match, you know, you entertained the crowd, you, you played a shot in that match that was voted shot at the tournament, like, you know, so, and you were up against, like, in my opinion, the greatest player of all time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, what did you, what did you learn from that, from playing that match? You know, what did you take from it? What I took from it, what I found out after was
1: during my first round against Barankis, he had two scouts watching. One was watching Barankis, one was watching me. So he's got people watching, you know, the rounds before to see where they like to serve on big points. Where All I've got on Federer, right, is that A, he's pretty amazing and and B, you look at a lot of videos, there is kind of his highlights. So you think he's this player who goes around hitting amazing winners all the time when in actual reality, he does it maybe two or three times a set max. Um, I thought he'd play a lot more aggressive. He, he kept the ball up really deep and slow and made me sort of, it took me by surprise at the start. So every time I had like a 40-30 or a big point, I'd try and hit a winner just because he was slowing the ball down. I thought, oh, he's giving me an opportunity to attack. But as I got into it, I started calming down a bit and playing more normal. And that's when I had most success. But, you know, it's served so good, so accurate. Not the most powerful in the world, but it like moves everywhere. There's no there's no read on it. Um, and the most frustrating thing was even if I hit a really deep or hard shot, he wouldn't back off. So you can't get any time off him because he just uses his hands and redirects the ball around. So it's like you're hitting a shot and you've got to hit the next one straight away. Whereas other players like Rublev, he hit the ball a lot harder than Federer, but he's a lot further back. So it gives you time to manoeuvre the ball around a bit. So I just felt quite rushed, certainly at the start. Um, Yeah, he he kind of, I don't know, he he kind of had a really good attack and a really good defence. And I couldn't really make him play anything other than attack or defence. That was the problem I had, was that once I got him in a neutral rally where he was hitting from the back, you know, he'd miss sometimes, especially on that backhand. But the problem was getting it there three times in a row because he tries to run round it and he'll slice it down the line and, like, come in. So, you know, Djokovic has had the the most success against him because he manages to keep him back. That's the only thing you can... (laughs) That's the only way I think you can beat him is by, A, if they they don't close the bloody roof, which didn't help me at all. And um, so if you get, you know, a bit of wind or a bit of sun, a bit of a leveller... Uh, then you can, you know, maybe cause him some problems. Um, B, yeah, you've got to try and keep him back, try and keep him away from the net, or oh, you can't, can't give him a, too many forehands. But look, I mean, he's as at the time, he was the best player in the you know, best of all time for sure. Uh, on grass, you know, with the roof closed, I didn't do too bad, <laughs> I didn't do too bad, so um. Yeah, it could have gone a lot worse as well. I always, I always look back at certain points of the match and think, you know, I had a break point to to in the third set that would have taken me five three up serving. I kind of look back to that, but then you know, I didn't do anything wrong. He a massive serve and a forehand smash. It's like, but you think, like, what if? What if he didn't? Wasn't so amazing on that point. What if you know I got that point? But you know, it could have been a lot worse as well. As I said,
0: <laughs> absolutely, and. I mean, I guess it's, um, needless to say, I'm guessing that was sort of the high point of your career, yeah? Pinnacle, would you say?
1: Yeah, it was the best I ever did at a slam. I had my dream of playing at Wimbledon. Um, Yeah, it, it it was incredible, like my singles career for sure. I mean, I got everything I wanted there, you know, had I played Wimbledon before, maybe not, but it's the fact that I never got there and I came from pre-Qualies and Qualies and was about to retire, it was like quite a nice turnaround for me, um, yeah, yeah, it was really nice, so much better than maybe getting a wild card and just winning a match and then losing second round, you know, I feel like I really earned that and and a lot of people didn't see it coming. Like it surprised quite a lot of people, and and certainly to the untrained eye, like people thought I was, you know, I was playing a lot better than someone seven hundred in the world, obviously. But people thought I was like this guy who was, you know, seven hundred in the world always. You know, i have been two three hundred in the world before, but like people thought, you know, seven seventy, he's a coach who's just rocked up for Wimbledon. So I mean, some of the some of the stories coming out of it were quite funny, but you know, even though I was still a good player, it was still a good achievement, not very good.
0: Yeah, without, without doubt. And the reason I said that about it being the pinnacle, I'm just interested in how you found sort of life post that experience, you know, sort of coming down from that high.
1: Yeah, it was it was weird, right? Like, so for some time after, I went on, like, Good Morning television the next day. I was with uh, Holly Willoughby and Scofield, and then I went on Piers Morgan. I got offered quite a lot of money to go and celebrate your big brother, but I was getting married, so I didn't go on it. Um, it's all like looking back. It's all artificial, though. It's, it's all, you know, people aren't bad people, but people are interested in you because they want to make a bit of money off you, or you know, want you for something that helps them. Um, and it's very easy to get wrapped up in it all. But you know, I didn't go on Celebrity Big Brother because I knew what life would be like. It's just, it's not something I wanted to do. And, and for some people, it'd be great. Um, but for me, no, I wanted to actually, after all that, I wanted to just go home and shut the door and, and chill out for a little bit and try and take it all in and just rest. Because it was it was it's tiring. Mm. Like all the media, all the all the stuff, it's it's good and financially it's great and but but yeah, it's not it's not something I'd want to do forever. <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> and as I said it's it's artificial. So yeah it was weird like a couple of years after I'm injured again and you know I didn't qualify for Wimbledon the next year, but I made third round of doubles and I'm still there and then I had a bad en- elbow injury the next year and then as I said, I retired in 2020 with the pandemic being on and having no funding again. So I was quite, I put on a lot of weight. I was coaching, I was, you know, socializing too much, shall we say. Um, but I had nothing to train for anymore. I kind of like lost my purpose a little bit. You know, coaching is great. I love helping people on court, but I didn't need to be in shape. I didn't need to go for a run. So I just let myself go a little bit. Um which is, I suppose, yeah, I think quite a lot of uh, athletes do it, don't they? It's not, I'm not the only one to put on a bit of timber. Um, but, yeah, as I said, uh, just over a, well, a year and a half ago, I was playing an exhibition tournament and, and I was still playing quite well, even though I was out of shape and, you know, a friend of mine um, at the club. said, so look, I've just come into a lot of money. I can sponsor you to go and play on tour if you want. And I was like, well... <laughs> Because I just retired, I was, you know, coaching and quite happy sorting out the next stage of my life. I was like, you know, look, I'm going to have to train and get in shape. And he's like, yeah, go for it. And so I trained from the the March up until the the June, started playing last July, and now I'm sat at 220 in the world uh, on the doubles tour, playing ATP challenges in Italy. So I mean, that that comeback's gone really well. i like much better than I expected. So. You know, hopefully next year I'm knocking on the door for Wimbledon. You know, that's that's the goal again, and I'm not I'm not done yet. I'm playing doubles, but um, again, another very random thing I didn't see coming. But this time it's just you know I'm, I just get on with it, and I don't have that long to play. Like I'm 32 now. If I can go past 40 and make a good career out of this, great. You know, if in a year's time I'm not really progressing, I'll probably, you know, I'm not going to keep getting sponsored forever. No one's going to keep throwing money at me if I'm not improving. So um, so here I am in Italy.
0: <laughs> it, it's really amazing to hear you speaking with that fire in your belly again, man, and to, to perhaps have rediscovered that purpose, it sounds like. Um, listen, Marcus, you, you've got a, a doubles match tomorrow, so, you know, I don't want to keep you up any longer than we need to. Uh, you need your rest. But before we wrap up, is there any kind of uh, parting message you want to leave with with our audience or... um,
1: Yeah, no, I think there is. I was thinking about this earlier, Like, obviously I've got a lot of time to think to myself when I'm going nuts by myself. But I kind of wish that, you know, the times I did stop, I wish I believed in myself more um, and just, you know, kept going. Because... A lot of people say it, you never know you never know how close you are to something until you you know quit And um, there's there's loads of people who say that but it's so true and I think had you know in whatever you do have a support network of people that care about you it doesn't have to be the best coach in the world but people that care about you that will support you I think that's more important than any super coach in the world so that that's what I didn't have and that's what I've learned is really important even now I've got you know I'm, I'm my network's big I'm you know speaking to a lot of different people about how how i'm trying to be better and i keep my friends and family close as well um but i just yeah i just say that try you know believe in yourself even when you think no one else does i think that's the most important thing because you know we, we just missed out on a wimbledon wildcard this year and it's very easy to go "Oh, people don't believe in me blah blah um but actually i've sort of turned it around and gone well it's amazing that I'm even in the question for a Wimbledon wildcard this year, considering I didn't play until August last year. So little things like that, that would have knocked me before because, you know, someone else didn't appreciate how well I've done. Um, it's just, yeah, just try and keep believing in yourself and keep trying to improve yourself each day and try and ignore all the outside nonsense. That That's what I do now. And I, I feel mentally I'm in the best place I've ever been. And, whether I get where I want to get or not, I can have no regrets moving forward. That's it. And that's what. That's what I don't want is regret because I've I already had a few of them through you know stuff I did in my career. So
0: it's a great way to finish the conversation, man. Thanks ever so much for your time, Marcus. Really appreciate it, and uh, and good luck with the the tournament that you're currently playing in. Thank you very much. Take
1: Thanks for having with. me.
0: Take care.
1: We can take our
0: dreams and make them real. Yeah. Look to the stars and reach cause you can do what you feel.